grace and peace to you. Our reading today is from Luke 7, 36 through 50. If you will please stand for the wording of the reading of the word of God. Thanks. Then one of the Pharisees asked Jesus to eat with him. And Jesus went to the Pharisee's house and sat down to eat. And behold, a woman in the city who was a sinner, when she knew Jesus sat at the table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of fragrant oil and stood at his feet behind him weeping. And she began to wash his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head. And she kissed his feet and anointed them with the fragrant oil. Now, when the Pharisee who had invited Jesus saw this, he spoke to himself saying, this man, if he were a prophet, would know who and what manner of woman is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus answered him and said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. So he said, teacher, say it. There was a certain creditor who had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. And when they had nothing from which to repay, he freely forgave them both. Tell me, therefore, which one of them will love him more? Simon answered and said, I suppose the one whom he forgave more. And Jesus said to him, you have rightly judged. Then he turned to the woman and said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has washed my feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head. You gave me no kiss, but this woman has not ceased to kiss my feet since the time I came in. You did not anoint my head with oil, but this woman has anointed my feet with fragrant oil. Therefore, I say to you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But to whom little is forgiven, the same loves little. Then Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. And those who sat at the table with him began to say to themselves, who is this? who even forgives sins. Then Jesus said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Boy, can you imagine having Jesus over for dinner? Kids, you get this. You think it's tough to clean up now before dinner for company. We had a couple of moments in my childhood where a boss or a, a friend or a distinguished visitor was coming. You would have thought Jesus was coming to our house from the talking to my mom gave us before they got there. You know, I've wondered about this as we've moved through the Gospels. There are so many stories of Jesus at a table. In fact, you could almost characterize Jesus' life in snapshots around tables. Jesus eats with, as the New Testament tells us, he eats with sinners, which was a scandal at that time. He eats with Pharisees, who he inevitably came into conflict with at the table. He flipped over tables in the temple to cleanse his father's house. And he gathered his disciples at the very end on the night he was betrayed around a table and said, you're going to remember this table forever. Jesus had a table filled ministry. 
And I don't think that's just a, a coincidence. I don't think that's just because Jesus loved to have a great time, although that's true. I don't think it's just because Jesus was often sought after to be invited over by all kinds of people, although that, that's also true. I think it's representative of the fact that from the beginning of the Bible to the end of the Bible, God is a hospitable and feasting God. Right? It's easy to get this backwards. Right? We are much more inclined to see the value of fasting than we are of feasting. Feasting just seems so guilty, like there might be something wrong with it. But actually, God decrees in the Old Testament that almost a third of the year is spent observing or thinking about or preparing for parties. The feasts of the Jews are unlike anything that we do today. Many times through the year, God reminds his people, stop, feast, be hosted by me. The tables that Jesus surrounds uh, with different people and with his disciples, they share a meal, and one of the things that Jesus does that's so curious is he often surrounds his table with enemies, and then through their time together at the table, he converts them into friends. And in fact, this is God's strategy through the whole Bible. He has um, several things at his disposal to do with his enemies, but the one we see on display over and over and over and over again is he eliminates his enemies by making them his friends. And many times that happens around a table. You know, we have a sense of this as well. We get our word companion, which just means a friend, from a compound word that means somebody you eat bread with. Pan is the word for bread, companion. You eat bread together, you have become friends. When you share a meal with somebody, it is something that bonds you together relationally. This is the blessing of hospitality. And hospitality has often been relegated into either the home or we think, okay, who has the gift of hospitality? Women, right? That's what we think. But what I want to propose to you this morning is a bigger vision of what it means to be hospitable. A bigger vision of what it means to surround yourself with people around a table. I want to argue one simple point this morning. Hospitality may be your greatest apologetic. Now, what do we mean by apologetics? Apologetics, we usually think of verbal altercations with atheists, right? If you're like me, that's what we think of apologetics. We're going to bring arguments and data and talk science, and we're going to prove to them that they're wrong and that we're right, and then they're going to convert, and we're all going to be friends. But actually, that doesn't happen as often as you would think it does. There's actually a much better way to have an apologetic, a defense of your faith, and it's to model the hospitality of God with your friends, your acquaintances, and your enemies. Hospitality is actually your greatest apologetic, turning your enemies into your friends. So in this story this morning, we see Jesus at a table, and I want to look at this table from four different angles. And in doing that, I think one of the brilliant ways that Luke tells us this story is he gives us all these contrasts between the people that are at this table. So, for example, the first one is the table of Simon the Pharisee. After all, he actually owns this table. This is in his house. It's his dinner party. He's invited the guests. And we're going to see a contrast in this table between the guests of Simon the Pharisee. Now, as we've talked about before, the Pharisees um, weren't as bad as sometimes we think they are, but they were misguided, right? The major sin of the Pharisees is hypocrisy. It wasn't that they were too devoted to God's law, it's that they substituted their own laws in the place of or on top of God's laws. 
You know what Jesus says to the Pharisees is, woe to you because you keep people from coming into fellowship with God. That's a pretty serious indictment. And we're going to see why Jesus says that at this dinner because around Simon the Pharisee's table, he's invited Jesus, he's invited probably some of the disciples and some of the well-to-do in society, and then Simon's table is crashed by a visitor. You see, in this story, they're having dinner, and we find out that a woman, and Luke has a very interesting description of this woman, a woman of the city who is a sinner. Okay, this is code in the Bible to let us know what kind of sinner. And I'm actually very thankful since we're not having children's church right now. I won't go into any more detail than this. She is a woman of the city who is a sinner. Now, that came with implications. You wouldn't want to be around this kind of person. And in fact, in the code that the Pharisees had, if you were around this person or if this person touched you, you and God would have a breach in your relationship because you would now become unclean. So Simon's dinner party is crashed by someone who is unclean. This would have been the worst nightmare for a Pharisee. Somebody comes in, they throw off the whole vibe, and now everybody there is going to have to miss a few days at the temple because this woman decided to come into his dinner party. Now, there was a, there was a, a, a tradition in Israel that at these big dinner parties, at the very end, you would leave some leftovers, and the people from among town could come and eat from what was left over. But what Simon doesn't realize is that principle was meant to be inviting, and he's interpreted as excluding. Simon doesn't want someone like this to share his table. And so what we have here is a contrast. Simon is a sinner as well, although he doesn't know it. And we've got a sinful woman, and we've got Jesus, and the contrast is that one person distances themselves from this woman, and as the story goes on, one embraces this woman. One scolds this woman. You remember Simon in his head is thinking, and this is what's so brilliant about Jesus. Simon says in his head, well, I mean, if he really was a prophet, he would know what's going on here. And Jesus, in the uncanny way that he does sometimes, reads his thoughts and says the quiet part out loud. Simon, I've got something to say to you about this situation. Simon scolds, but Jesus forgives. Simon makes trouble, but Jesus makes peace. There's a great book by Craig Blomberg, and it's a survey of all the table scenes in the gospel, and he chose to title that book, Contagious Holiness. Contagious Holiness. See, when a woman comes into Simon's table, Simon leaves unclean. But when Jesus comes into this table, everybody leaves clean. That's part of God's peacemaking venture with the world. It says in Isaiah that his blood has washed us white as snow. Contact with Jesus never leaves you unclean, but instead he takes whatever uncleanness you bring and makes you clean. So Simon was afraid of contamination, but Jesus was there to heal. At the table of Simon the Pharisee, we learn that peace comes through relationships, not through judgment. Now let's look at a different table. This is the table of the woman. So she comes in, and she immediately is the center of attention at this dinner party because this would have been so absurd at a Pharisee's dinner table to see this scene. And we get a contrast here of two people who are hosting the king of kings. So at the woman's table, we see someone who is so focused on the king. She comes in, and she shows love to Jesus when Simon shows contempt. 
And the thing that is so wonderful about her reaction, she comes in, and you know from the way this story is told, what she intends to do is take this little flask of ointment and anoint Jesus' head. Now, in, in, in the first century, women would often carry a little bottle of perfume with them. And this was so ingrained in the culture that they were even allowed to do this on the Sabbath, even though you're not supposed to carry things like that on the Sabbath. But even the Pharisees knew you should not mess with the laws of fashion in the first century. So this would not have been uncommon for someone to have a very valuable bottle of ointment or perfume that they bring into a place like this. And what she does is she takes a very valuable bottle of ointment and she's going to anoint Jesus and then she loses it on the way in. See, what happens is she's making her way into this dinner party, and what they did at these dinner parties is they had cushions around a table that was about this far off the ground. And they would recline, they would lay on their left arm and eat with their right arm. And so for Jesus, it's, it's, his feet are actually the most exposed part of him. They're probably closest to the door. And that's as far as she makes it. I know in our minds, sometimes we think of a story like this, and we're like, she is like under the table, and she's down there. And it's like, this would have been the closest spot to get to Jesus. And right when she gets there, her emotions overcome her, and she begins to cry. Now, this is a really resourceful woman, okay? She starts to cry. She's making a scene. She doesn't have a towel, so what does she do? She takes down her hair and begins to dry the master's feet with her hair. This was so socially unacceptable. But for her, none of the social standards mattered because she was in the presence of the king. So she begins to weep and she begins to dry his feet with her hair. She breaks open this bottle, which would have been probably the most valuable thing that she owns, and she presents it to Christ. This is what the woman's table is like. It's a place where she gives her heart first and then her stuff. And the problem is Simon does the exact opposite. He gives a few things, and pretty meager things at that, but he doesn't give his heart. Simon does the absolute minimum. Jesus, when he tells this story to Simon, if you're looking in verse 44, he says, do you see this woman? She's given everything she had, and you didn't even do the pleasantries. right? You didn't even do the things that would have been socially expected at a dinner like this. This woman showed love, she showed repentance, and Simon showed self-righteousness. This woman was an outsider who looked on the inside, and Simon was an insider who looked on the outside. And what she shows us is portrayed in this parable. Jesus, reading Simon's thoughts, says, okay, I've got something to say to you. Jesus is not afraid of conflict around the table. So he says, I'm going to tell you a story. There's two debtors, and one of them, a denarius, is, is about a day's wages, so one of them owes almost 200, or two years' worth of working wages, 500 days. And the other owes just short of two months of working wages. And the master decides to forgive both of them. Which person is going to be more grateful? Now, Simon is quick enough to get this point. The person who has been forgiven the greater debt. And Jesus says, that's exactly right. If you understood the amount of your debt, your love would be totally transformed. Here's the principle of hospitality at the woman's table. Love comes from seeing your own condition. So if you have a love problem in your life, if you have a love problem with your enemies, if you have a love problem with the people around you, the answer is not to just decide to be more loving. 
The answer is, you need to better understand the position that you are in, and love will begin to flow out of your heart. See, what the problem for Simon was, he didn't think that he had anything to be forgiven for. So he didn't have any love to give. And as a Christian, sometimes it's easy to be lulled into this, that maybe you've been a Christian for so long, or maybe you don't have the public sins that you look at in other people, or maybe you've just gotten so disconnected from the Holy Spirit's witness in your heart that on a daily basis, you really don't think about your own condition. And downstream from that, you don't offer the kind of love that Jesus has called us to give. At the table of the woman, we learn that when we see ourselves clearly, we're free to love others. Now, there's a third table, and this is true in all the stories. This is not just an academic exercise where we look and we see, yeah, the, the Pharisee was wrong and the woman was right and we move on with our lives. We're actually invited in the Gospels to encounter Christ through these stories. And so the third table is your table, my table. How do we host? Based on this story, what should we learn about hospitality? Well, I, I want to make a caveat here because it's always, it's always kind of an awkward thing to, to apply something like this because everybody assumes that they're not doing it. And I'm not saying that at all. I think this is one of the most hospitable places in the world. That's why Laura and I moved here. For the people, the relationships, this is an awesome place. And so what I'm doing is encouraging from this story, not rebuking. What we learn from this story is a good host does three things. Number one, a good host knows that they have been given the power to bless. A good host knows that they have been given the power to bless. Did you know that when people come into your home, they can be friends, they can be older or younger than you are, they can be uh, um, your enemies, they can be your work associates. In that moment, the way God set up the universe is you now have the power to bless that person in your home. I was listening uh, a couple of years ago to the Global Leadership Summit, and there was a guy speaking there named Horst Schulze, and he, is, he was the president and the COO of the Ritz-Carlton Hotel Group. And so over 30 years, he had led this group of luxury and hospitality. And um, I loved what he was talking about because he said, what does it really take to offer good customer service? And he said, you know, the first thing you've got to know is that care is always the product. Whatever your product is, if you don't care about the customer, they will get that product somewhere else. Your product is always care. But then he said something that I thought was so audacious. He said, the biggest change we ever made at the Ritz-Carlton Hotels is that we empowered every employee from vice presidents and hotel managers all the way down to the people that were just cleaning up the rooms after people left. We said, you have the authority to spend up to $2,000 meeting the needs of the customer. You have been deputized. You have been authorized. You've been empowered to do whatever it takes to take care of the customer. And he tells this story that there is this lady who was cleaning the room after somebody had left. She was a housekeeper at the hotel in Atlanta, and she found a laptop in the room that she was cleaning. And so she goes down to the desk, and she gets the contact info for the person who had left the laptop, and she calls him. And he had just arrived in Hawaii, and he was giving a huge presentation the next day. So she says, I'll get back to you. And she calls up UPS and FedEx and everybody, and she said, how, how quick can you get this laptop there? Nobody could get it there in time for the presentation. So this empowered, audacious housekeeper buys the next ticket to Hawaii. 
I'm sure there are no ulterior motives here. She would have done the same thing if it was somewhere else. But she buys the next ticket to Hawaii. She gets there. She delivers the laptop on time. She gets on a plane and comes back. And then she has a meeting with her manager the next day. And he says, great job. Great job. Now, he tells in this story, he says, okay, now we would call this a little bit crazy. I mean, if we're honest, this is a little bit crazy. But don't you think this woman felt empowered? Don't you think this woman knew what the main goal was? Don't you think this woman knew that her role was so much more focused on that relationship than it was on the cost that it would take to maintain it? And I think that's the key to hospitality. That's what God has done for us. He pursued us at the highest cost to himself so that he could have you, he could have me as his friends. That he could turn us from enemies into his companions. So a host knows that they have been given the power. They have been deputized to bless. A good host also knows that you save the best for the guests. You save the best for the guests. So if you, go, if you ever go to the Middle East, one of the things you'll notice is they have a very different culture of hospitality than we do. One that's actually a lot closer to what we see in the first century than what we see in America today. And if you go into like a tent of a Bedouin, for example, if you're in the desert and you go into the tent of a Bedouin, one of the things that they do is they bring you in and they have a special jar of tea and coffee that they keep only for guests. So this is not their regular Folgers that they use or their K-cups that they use on their Keurig. These are the special expensive teas and coffees that they keep when they have somebody in their home. And it's a principle that they model in so many ways of life that they actually save what they have that is best for others. And there's another rule in these tents that I've always found fascinating. When somebody comes into your home, it doesn't matter who they are. They could be your worst enemy, and you have three days of obligations to host them before you can do anything else. So they say they explain it this way. If you have a person who has come after your family and you invite them into the tent, you give them shelter for three days before you can pursue them for revenge. <laughs> Might have a couple other things to say about that, but the first part is good. You know, this is a principle that runs through Scripture. Do you remember last week we talked about the greatest commandment? Love God with all of your heart and all your mind and all your soul and all your strength. And the second commandment is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. And we talked about the fact that Jesus is fusing together two huge commandments, one of them really obvious and the other not so obvious. Because the second commandment comes from Leviticus chapter 19. And then, as is now, this was not a life verse for most people. Leviticus 19 talks about all these rules for what you should do when you encounter other people. Laws of cleanliness, purification, and then it says, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself, for I am the Lord. And right before that, we get this principle in Scripture, Leviticus 19, verses 9 and 10, that was common in the Old Testament. We actually see it in the book of Ruth. When you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap your field right up to the edge. Neither shall you gather the gleanings after your harvest, and you shall not strip your vineyard bare. Neither shall you gather the fallen grapes of your vineyard. You shall leave them for the poor and the sojourner, for I am the Lord." What the people knew then and what I think we need to recover now is that it's not good to use everything you get if you're not creating margin for the guest. What they would do is they would leave a section at the end of their field so that people who needed it could come and harvest that for themselves. 
And I think a practical example of this is when you are saving the best for the guest, it's as simple as putting a little bit extra in your budget for that item, whether it's food or hosting or whatever. We just set aside a little bit extra each month because we know that we're going to want to treat our guests like kings. And, you know, this isn't just a, a, a money thing. I mean, it doesn't have to be expensive. You could say at our, at our house, we're going to clean off the table when people come over so we can be face-to-face. The most important gift you can give someone is not food. It's not a great experience. It's your presence. That's what God has done for us. He's turned his face back towards us. Sometimes it's just as much as saying, when our guests come over, I'm going to put my phone in the bedroom so that I'm not even tempted to be distracted when they're here. Or, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to think of some questions with our kids beforehand so that we can include the entire group that's here. I'm going to remember some recent good news that's happened in their family to show that we care about them. Save the best for the guests. Number three, every, every good host knows where the source of good things come from. Every host knows the source of where good things come from. We can give the best because we've received the best. We can give our time and our attention and our love without worrying about the return because we've already been blessed by God. The principle in this story is what's happened to you on the inside manifests on the outside, not the other way around. So we don't host with an eye to what we're going to get in return. right? It's, it's, it's not the thing that we invite them over and then we're kind of upset afterwards because they've never invited us over. It's we give with no expectation because we know where every good thing comes from, and it's not them. It's from God. At our table, we learn, people learn from us what a loving and generous God we serve. Your table is an apologetic. But there's one more table, and this is the table of Christ. So in this story, what we get to see is what it looks like when Jesus hosts someone. And both of these people, in certain ways, are his enemies. And at the end, he's given an opportunity for both of them to become his friends. And and Jesus understands a principle of giving that only he can do perfectly. And that is when you host, and this is true in the Middle East then and now, you give gifts to the guest. Now, I'm not talking about like party favors, right? As kids, you know, you play laser tag and then everybody goes home with a, you know, squishy goo thing that gets all over your house and, you know... These are kind of little remnants of this culture. But actually, in in the Bible, you're supposed to give gifts to the guests, but they're not tangible gifts. They're intangible gifts like peace and forgiveness and rest, withholding judgment, interest, attention. You know, when I was doing college ministry working with international students, I came across this statistic that 90% of internationals are never invited into the home of an American when they're in our country. And I just thought, that is the worst witness for Christians. Because what they're getting from that is not the lack of a free meal. What they're getting from that is they are not interested in me. What Jesus does at his table is he he gives the gift of his presence. He gives the gift of forgiveness. And I want to focus on this when he gives the gift of peace. If you've got your Bible open, look at the very last line of this story. This is in chapter 7, verse 50. And he says to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Now, here, there's a little bit of a difference between the way we could translate this for just an everyday story and what this technically means in the Greek. So this this preposition that's used here more typically means into. And in fact, the Jews made a distinction here. The Greek-speaking Jews made a distinction. The Greek is literally go into peace. 
And it would be worth noting, one of the commentators says, that go in peace was a proper farewell for the dead. But for the living, they always said, go into peace. And I think this is so significant. Go into peace. Jesus says, your sins are forgiven. You have my acceptance. You have my attention. You have my face. Now, live in peace. Go walk towards peace. The table of Jesus shows up again in the Gospels, and it's going to show up again in the book of Revelation. It's a wedding feast table where every person who is in Christ comes to feast with him forever. And I was just stunned this week to think about the connection between a story like this where Jesus talks to us about what it means to be a host and later in the Gospels where Jesus actually is the host of a meal at the Last Supper. And one of the commentators said, isn't it of all the means by which Jesus could have, been chosen, could have chosen to have been remembered, he chose to be remembered by a meal. What he considered memorable and characteristic of his ministry was his table fellowship. The meal, one of humankind's most basic and common practices, was transformed by Jesus into an occasion of divine encounter. It was in the sharing of food and drink that he invited his companions to share in the grace of God. In a moment, we're going to do communion together, and communion is going to the table of the Lord. Right? When Jesus introduces this, he gives thanks, and he breaks the bread, and he passes around the cup, and then he says, you should proclaim this. You should, you should actually speak about this. You should remember this until I come again. And the point of saying that is that you have been invited to the table of the Lord. And every time you gather together with people, and especially as you gather together for communion, you're proclaiming the fact that there is a table that you have a seat at for all of eternity with the attention and forgiveness and peace of the Lord. When you take the bread and the cup, as we're going to do here in a minute, what you're proclaiming is that God has invited you to be his guest. Go and host likewise. Go and host likewise. I'm going to pray, and in a minute, Andy's going to come back up and, and play, and we've got communion servers that are going to come, or just stand up and grab one if you don't already, and then we'll wait and take this meal together, and uh, we'll pray, and we'll ask God to remind us of what a privilege it is to be at his table.